So our, our topic today is the second in the series called Ingredients of Nationhood. I felt that at the time that we were learning let's learn about what makes us a nation in order to understand what we are here today, what we are today or what we're supposed to be today and what we're missing. Um, before we start, I want to say, I, I take a special moment to thank Elliot Horowitz, Elliot and Shanti who are sponsoring for the yard site of Elliot's father, Oliver Shalom, and Mr. Harry Horowitz, whose yard site is Dalad Shvast which is, uh, oh, 30th, uh, it's the 30th year site for Elia's father, Her, um, um, Yosef Tzvi Benarav Pesach Halevi. Um, Elliot, I'd like to know more, and I didn't have a chance to ask before Shir about him, but all I can tell you, all I can say is, is that he must be one very proud father and grandfather um, and great-grandfather of, uh, of, the, of the family, and Metz uh, Shem, continued intellectual pursuit and integrity and honesty. In, uh, in, in, uh, in intellectual and Torah pursuits should continue for many, many generations to come. Thank you for your always, always your specific and, and, and precise ha'aras on anything we learn together. I look forward to learning more. Amit Hashem. So let, let, let's, start, let's start talking about the story. Let's start talking and appreciating the story that we're learning. So in, uh, in 1936, there was something called the Peel Commission. The Peel Commission was set up by by England under, uh, in, concerning the mandate of Palestine at the time. And it was set up in reaction to what? Peel Commission was in response to? Arab riots, Arab riots nothing new. Um, and uh, the Arabs were, the, they were upset. Why were they upset? Because there were too many Jews coming into um, the British mandate of Palestine. After all, it's an, you know, one Jewish homeland is too, one too many um, for, the, for the folks nearby. And although they were creating... Um, many, many job opportunities. There also was a sense of that uh, were called our ancestral ha- uh, homeland, according to the Palestinians, or they weren't called Palestinians at the time. That was a name that was, it came up a little bit later. Was was being taken the local Arabs. Some of them were Egyptian Arabs. Some of them were Syrian Arabs. And some of them were Arabs who'd been there for many generations, depending on. But they they felt the the Jews were encroaching. So the, so the, the English, in, in order to pander towards the Arab world, set up a commission to understand the background of this. Of this, of this whole phenomenon, you know, you have two different groups of people living on this on the on this land with very different claims and narratives. So David Ben Gurion was summoned to the commission, and he presented the following evidence. Um, and he said a very very powerful um, observation. He says, 300 years ago, a ship called the Mayflower set sail to the New World. In it were Englishmen, unhappy with the, uh, English rule and government, who sought an uninhabited coast to settle and establish a new world. They landed in America and were among the first pioneers and builders of that land. There were a ma- that, 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 this was a major event in the history of England and America. But I'd like to know, is there a single Englishman who knows the exact date and hour of the Mayflower's launch? How much do American children or grown-ups know about the historic trip? Do they know how many people were in that boat, their names, what they wore, what they ate, their path of travel, what happened to them on their way, where they landed? Now, folks, I, I became naturalized in this country. So, so uh, when you study these things, it actually is fascinating, I, although I doubt most Americans know any of the basics about American government. It's a really very fascinating um, uh, subject to, to study. And he goes on, says David Ben-Gurion, more than 3,300 3, years ago, the, before the Mayflower set sail, the Jews left Egypt. Any Jewish child, whether in America or Russia, Yemen or Germany, knows that his forefathers left Egypt to the dawn of the 15th of Nisan. What did they wear? The belts that, that were t- uh, their, their belts were tied and their staffs were in their hands. They ate matzos and they arrived the Red Sea after seven days. And he goes on to describe what they ate in the desert and their sojourns and the place they sta- stopped and all the names of their ancestors. 
And then he goes on to say, and every year that we commemorate this event, those children carry on telling that story and they say, in the next year we will be in Jerusalem. And part of the story is where we're going to. That's what David Ben-Gurion um, said to the commission, which is essentially a very important um, idea to remember in the politics of today. The, um, those who support what's called the, the Palestinian right for self-determination um, self talks about the narrative of being dispossessed from their land. So sometimes what we, we do is we try to explain why we didn't really dispossess and how, we, uh, how we're trying to do it in a very humane way and all these things. But we forget the narrative. What David Ben-Gurion said is, let's tell, talk about the narrative. We were also dispossessed many, many, many years before that. And we're coming back to what was, we were dispossessed from. And yes, we may speak Romanian at the beginning when we come, but our ancestors, fathers, 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 came to this land long before anybody else was here of this, of, of this nature or this ilk. This is, this is what the, the story is. And the, the, this investigation of our, our time together today is to understand the importance of stories or shared story as part of nationhood why this is a necessary component of, um, of, of our nation. Uh, they, they, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov is quoted saying in Chayyim Oran, he says the following, uh, The world says that those who tell stories, and the stories bring us to sleep. That really truly telling stories wakes people up from their sleep. Wakes us from our slumber, our slumber of the generations. Let's try to appreciate who we are, where we are, what, where we're coming from. Now, he's referring to more perhaps, more particularly, Hasidic stories. But, and he was very famous at telling um, very enigmatic stories. But I think let's stretch it a little further and think about the stories of ourselves, who we are. Why is this, uh, why is this so important? So it's interesting. There's a very, very powerful book called the Kuzari, written by Rabbi Huda Alevi, written based on a legend of old that there was a king in the, in the I I I Far East who's uh, of a particular province called the Khazars, who apparently did an intellectual investigation and became Jewish. So he wrote a theoretical, um, we'll call it dialogue, between the Melech Kuzar and various religions, ending with the, the Jews, and his investigation of it through the Socratic method of conversation and dialogue, question after question after question. And so what is interesting is the first set of paragraphs are very intense between the, the conversation between the king of the Khuzars, who wakes up, he has a dream, he knows that he's supposed to be doing something right, he has the right intentions, incorrect actions, he's trying to find his way, he speaks to a Christian, a Muslim, a philosopher, doesn't find that he's satiated in their conversation, so he turns to the Jews. And he has what he says to himself. Kuzari in source 2, Oh, you know what? <laughs> It can't hurt, after all this, to speak to them Jews. Um, after all, they are the remnant of the nation of Israel. They, they claim that there is this, this, this teaching in the land. So he goes and he calls uh, the Jew. Enter Jew. Right? So now we have Jew, and the, the Jew is called Chaver. There's a, a wise sage as opposed to Chacham, which was the name of the philosopher, but he's called Chaver. So what, what is, what's the first um, opening um, volley given by this, uh, this Chaver? So the Chaver says to him, We believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who took us out of Egypt and fed us in the Hamechal Kalalam Bamidbar, sustained us in the desert, and brought us to the land of Canaan, brought us across the sea, across the Jordan, with great wonders, 
Um, and we got the book of Moses, we got the book of the prophets afterwards, so that tell us about the good reward for keeping this book, um, and the punishment for um, forfeiting it. And there's much mentioned in the Torah, and it's much too long for one foot. So we need to, we need to study more. That's what the, the Jew says. Right, so it sounds pretty, you know, that's a pretty reasonable, you know, summary. If you were to give a summary of Judaism, it's a pretty reasonable summary of, of Judaism. But the, the Melech Kuzar does not like this approach. He says this is, this is inappropriate. In fact, he actually denigrates the Jew for this, for this, this, uh, this, um, this, this opening. And he says in the Kuzari, he says, <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have asked Jews, right? Jews are always, are always sidetracked, detours, getting, getting, getting involved in other conversations. They spent too long, too long as a persecuted minority in the diaspora. That stopped their thinking well, right? That's, they're not able to, to, con, to conceive of logical ideas. So Jew, this is what you should have said. Let me, let me try to help you rephrase your argument. He says, you believe in the creator of the world. Why? The reason you believe in God, Jew, is because God created the world and you. Right? Let's scope it back to when it's ready starts. The reason why you should believe in God is because he created us. That's more universal. That's, that's, we'll call it a grander scale. You're telling me these little, you know, you know, anecdotes, you know, here and there, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jack, these, these individuals, you know, and this, this Egypt business, like, it's so small. It's so small in the scale of things. Start reading Near Eastern archaeology. Start reading the stories that there's a much larger game afoot than, uh, than what you're telling me. So it sounds like you're missing the point. Right, that's, that's the, the, the Melech Kuzari says. So the, the, a, number of, a number of different dialogues ensue. And at the end of this whole dialogue, uh, a number of paragraphs later, what the Melech Kuzari says is the following. And this is a very, sorry, this is the Chaver response. And he says the following in, in the, uh, over, the, over the page. He says, Omar Chaver. At the end, he says the following. Uh, I've now explain, I'm going to explain to you why I answer this way. When, Fer, when Moses presented himself in front of Pharaoh, uh, the parashios we're learning now, what was the claim that, that Moshe Rabbeinu says to Pharaoh? The God of the Hebrews sent me. What does that mean? Why did um, Moses choose to talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why didn't he talk about the creator of the world? It's because people knew about Abraham. Because that was what people related to. Then similarly, God said the same thing. Well, where is that statement? That's Aserasa Dibrois. I mean, the first of the tab, the commandments in the, or the, in, in the Aserasa Dibrois is about Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, not about Briyas Shemayi Varetz. Isn't that a more impressive resume? Isn't that more universalistic? Isn't that the context of all reality? I mean, Egypt happened to be a dot on the, we will call it on the graph, but what about the graph? I'm saying like, why doesn't God tell us the whole context? So he says, why? Because and that's why I started this way, Merach Kuzar, O King of the Kuzar, Kazars, Kasheh Sheil Tiu Al Ma Al Emonasi, 
I'm telling you what I am obligated to and what all of Israel is obligated to. Why? I'm telling you what we experienced. Meaning at creation there was no one to experience that. In order for us to be who we are, we needed to have experienced and see God. God relates to us through the events that formed who we are. Which means that if we think about this clearly, that it's not about necessarily the physics, but the history. That's what essentially the the Melakazar is saying. In order to know who your identity is, yes, it's possible, as Avraham Avinu himself did. He looked at creation, he said, you know, this is remarkable. There's all these different pieces, and they seem to be this this power, this entity, and he tried to, you know, work out who's at the top of this, this of this pyramid. Right? So it is possible to find God that way. He says, but that's not necessarily empirical. What is empirical to us is our experience. So God reached out through history to us. There are lots of different ways to ask how to prove God. And one of them is through physics. But there's another one that Kumelech Kuzara says, it's through history. And it's not just his story, it's actually my story. In order for me to understand and know that God has a relationship with me, I need to be the one who's connected to this. So it's coming back to that notion of the story starts with us. The story starts with us, with Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and then finally, Yetzirah, Mitzrayim, which is why it's such a central tenet in our, in our faith. But let's go further. So let's reverse those, those 3,300 years. Let's go back uh, into, into the, the world of Egypt. And today we have a little bit of a problem because we think of Egypt as this you know, third world country in the, in the, you know, in the north, northmost uh, right, uh, um, northeast corner of Africa, which is you know, essentially just tapering on, 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 on bankruptcy with an economy on, on the brink, sustained by, at this point in time, American foreign aid, and then before the 60s on Russian Soviet foreign aid at that point in time. You know, had, it, had a few you know, exciting firework bangs, but really an economy on the brink of collapse. Um, with, with an unstable military government essentially at this point in time. And we, you know, we look at that and we say, Egypt, you know, <laughs> that's not what it meant when, it, when, it, when we reversed 3,300 years ago. The, Egypt was essentially the entire North Africa and spilling over into the Middle East. It was the greatest commercial and military empire the world had ever known at that point in time. And yes, it waned later on, but it was a very significant powerhouse in the civilized world. And the leader of that, of that world was a man by the name of this point in time, Ramses. Ramses was a very powerful individual. In fact, just to understand the, 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 how, how powerful he viewed himself, Ramesses is, means, the, means Ra is the god, one, the, is, is the god of the sun, and Mesis means child. So he, his name was Ramesses. I am the child of the sun god. Right? That's, that's how, how he, he operated, which is why you can appreciate the penultimate Mako was, of course, right when the sun stops right so you have to understand why the severity the climactic reach of the 11th plague was so significant so you have Ramesses by the way that's why Moshe Rabbeinu why is he why was he called Messis or Moses because one of the reasons could be is he was a child Messis means child right Ramesses right so he was called child as he was pulled out of the Nile so you have Ramesses he makes he makes these incredible edifices, you, one of the most powerful nations of the time. And I, so Jonathan Sachs has this beautiful, beautiful observation. And he says, if you were to have, if you were to have had an interview with Ramesses at this point in time and, and had a conversation and said, you know, out of all the people around you, who's going to be the one who lasts the longest? Um, he would never, never in his wildest imaginations have, have, have thought that, that, you know, nothing nameless Hebrew who's, you know, making bricks 
as a you know, substrata of society, not even worthy of you know, identity or naturalization or even foreign citizenship, is, uh, would have any, any future at all. And yet, ironically, the Egypt's, Egyptians of the old are gone and the, and the Jews remain. But what, where did it start? Sir so Sachs has a very beautiful observation, which is to be found in his book called Radical Then, Radical Now, or A Letter in the Scroll, and he says the following. This is, this is such a powerful, uh, we take it for granted, but it's such a powerful observation in Source 3. Egypt and Israel three millennia ago were nations that asked themselves the most fundamental human question of all. How do we defeat death and conquer mortality? How? In the brief span of human life, do we participate in something that will endure long after we are no longer here? The Egyptians gave one answer, an answer through the ages that has tempted our emperors and tyrants, rulers and kings. We defeat mortality by building monuments that will stand for thousands of years. These, the, their stones will outlive the winds and sands of time. And that's true. If you go to Egypt, one of the only things that supports the Egyptian economy is tourism. Right? So go and see their stones right, as they stand there thousands of years ago, and, and in a certain sense, yes, but that's all that's left of them. The Jews gave an entirely different answer. The Israelites, slaves in Egypt for more than 200 years, were about to go free. Ten plagues had struck the country. Whatever the cause, they seemed to convey a message. The God of Israel is on the side of freedom and human dignity. On the brink of their release, Moses, the leader of the Jews, gathered them together, prepared to address them. He might have spoken about freedom. He could have given them a stirring address about the promised land to which they were traveling, the land flowing with milk and honey. Or he might have prepared them for the journey that lay ahead, a long march across the wilderness. Instead, Moses delivered a series of addresses that seemed to have no sense, in the, makes no sense in the context of that particular moment. He presented a new idea, revolutionary in the character whose implications remain challenging even now. He spoke about children and the distant future, and the duty to pass on the memory to the generations yet unborn. Three times he turned to them, and there, here we have, Yigadzla bin Chobay Yamahu Lemor, Vayakim Rolechem Benechem, Avodazazlochem. Three times in Parshas Boy, when Moshe is on the brink of releasing the nation of Israel, he talks about education. Next paragraph, he says at the end, Freedom, Moses suggested, is won not on the battlefield, not in the political arena, but in the human imagination and will. To defend a land, you need an army. To defend a freedom, to defend freedom, you need education. You need families and schools to ensure that your ideals are passed on to the next generation and never lost, or despaired of or obscured. The citadels of liberty are houses of study. In hero, its heroes are teachers, its passion is education and, and the life of the mind. Moses realized that a people achieves immortality not by building temples or mausoleums, by engraving their values on the hearts of their children and they on theirs, and so on until the end of time. The Israelites built living monuments, monuments to life, and became people dedicated to bringing new generations into being and handing on, uh, handing on to them the heritage of the past. Such a brilliant observation. So we take it for granted, of course, education. That's not at of course. And, our, and by the way, it's happening right here in America. Right now is when you start redefining what the history is. When you start saying that perhaps 1619 is the year, not 1776. When you start trying to understand what is our history or when people no longer are interested in talking about the history of the shared story of a nation, then there are other people who are going to come in and tell different stories. You're going to have Somalian refugees who come to this country and benefit from the incredible country and liberty of this country and move their way to Congress and bite the hand that fed it. That's what's going to happen in a country that doesn't remember its own story. Because yes, this is an oppressive, persecuting, slave-touting nation. That's not the narrative of America. There are many blemishes in the past of America that need to be corrected. There are. 
but the story of America needs to be remembered by its, by, by its citizens. In a time when Memorial Day and Independence Day are simply consumer happiness days, and the, the idea of what it means to have fought for freedom, that freedom is not free, is something clearly being forgotten by the fringes of the cities, not in the heartland of the country. This is something which requires a little bit of observation for the American the present as well. We need to be, need to be cognizant of this. That's, it doesn't take too long. This is, this is only 250 years for this very young country. And Judaism somehow is still telling the story. And somehow we're still here. That was what Moshe Rabbeinu was able to, 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 uh, to make the observation. And by the way, to, to dig it a little deeper, this is an article, uh, it's such a powerful article that I came across in 2013. Um, it's, a, it's a story, it's an article in the New York Times called The Stories That Bind Us. Very, by Bruce Feller, very, very fascinating article. He talks about an Emory professor his name was Dr. Marshall Duke, a, a, a psychologist, um, who, who had this theory. He, um, his theory was is that um, um, the, 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 he was talking about the articles about the dissipation of family values. Especially in the 90s, this was a big thing. A lot of the movies reflect that, of the, that era, of that milieu, of the sort of speak, the, the family unit breaking apart. It's interesting to see how you will call it so the, the pop culture reflects what's happening in society. And he says the, he says the following, there was a lot of research at the time into the dissipation of the family, he told me, at his home in the suburban Atlanta, but we are most interested in, uh, in what families could do to counteract these, these, these forces. Second paragraph in source four. Around that time, Dr. Duke's wife, Sarah, a psychologist who works with children and learning disabilities, noticed something about her students. The ones who know a lot about their families tend to do better when they face challenges, she said. Now, that's, by the way, anecdotal, right? So that's not research-based. So she's just saying, I've, not, I've spoken a lot to kids, and a lot of kids who seem to know where they come from do better, right? That's, what she, that's her observation as a clinician. So now he was intrigued. Her husband was intrigued, and along with a colleague, Robin Fivish, um, set out to test her hypothesis. hypothesis. They developed a measure called the Do You Know Scale and asked children the answer to, uh, to answer 20 questions. Examples included, do you know where your grandparents grew up? Do you know where your mom and dad went to high school? Do you know where your parents met? Do you know the, what, uh, an illness or something really terrible that happened in your family? Do you know the story of your birth? Okay, so basic questions, right? Not just password questions, right? These are they're, they're just basic questions of the family. Dr. Duke and Dr. Fivish asked those questions to four dozen families in the summer of tw uh, 2001 and tapped several of their dinner table conversations, uh, taped several of their dinner table conversations. That would be legal to tap them. Um, <laughs> they then compared the children's, uh, this is before the Patriot Laws, right? They, they then compared the children's results to, to battery of psychological tests the, ch uh, um, the children had taken and reached the overwhelming conclusion. The more the children knew about their family's history, the stronger their sense of control over their lives and the higher their self-esteem and the more, uh, the more successfully they believed in their family, uh, the, uh, they believed their families functioned. The do you know scale turned to be the best single pr predictor of a child's emotional health and happiness. That was wild, right? We were blown away. Now it gets better. Because when was this research conducted? June 20, uh, 2001. And then something unexpected happened. Two months later was September 11, 2001. As citizens, Dr. Duke and Dr. Fivush were horrified by everything else, uh, but like everyone else. But as psychologists, they knew they had been given a rare opportunity. Though the families they studied had not been directly affected by these events, all children experienced some the same national trauma at the same time. The researchers went back and reassessed their ch the children. Once again, Dr. Duke said, the ones who knew more about their families proved to be more resilient, meaning they could, co could moderate the effects of stress. 
What, what does knowing about where your grandmother went to school help a child overcome something as minor as a skinned knee or as major as a terrorist attack? The answer has to do with a child's sense of being part of a larger family, Dr. Duke said. Remarkable. Right, and now, think about this for a second. He's only talking about small families. Right, he's just talking about this little, this concentric ring. And he goes into further research and he talks about how to create traditions of families and how to create, you know, gatherings of the meals where we talk about our families. But think about this, folks. We've been given on a golden platter. Think about this. You know, every Shabbos we go and get together and every Pesach we get together, we talk about our parents and grandparents. We get to be forced to come together and to talk about not just our family traditions, our greater family, why we got to where we are. Could there be no greater sense of family values, of what it means to be part of a larger family, to be carrying a story. It's remarkable. We don't need to re -re recreate this. When we lived in Chicago, we, once, we, we were looking for a dining room table, so we went on Craigslist, we found this, ta this, this table, we rented a U-Haul, went out into the suburbs and got this beautiful table. It was 11 years old, and, you, and when they took off the, the cloth, you could see your reflection in the woods because it was so pristine. And it's 11 years old. And, she, and, she's, and so we said, like, how often do you use this? She says, Thanksgiving and Xmas. You know, that was, that was the time when people would use their dining room table. There's the time we'd be around the kitchen or on the, on the couch for the, with the TV. And I said, don't worry, we'll take care of it in just a few years. <laughs> because Jews, we use dining room tables. That's what happens, right? We have the family. We're forced to have the family every week. And yes, maybe there's not a formula to talk about the values, but we can. We should. We ought to. And on Pesach, we're forced to. In fact, it is mandated that we have to talk about the notion of our family. And how many of the Sadarim we think about in our lives, when we go back to hear our parents, our family's stories, and how it connects the dots to the journey that we're taking now. What, it's remarkable to me when I, when I hear people who talk about this and they, and they, and they talk about uh, how they're not, they're not going to give their children, they're not going to force it down their children's throat. They're going to allow their children to discover by themselves and make their own decisions. What hogwash. <laughs> I mean, like, it's unbelievable. I'm basically not going to tell you the story of how we got here. You're not part of anything meaningful. I'm going to let you like, go like driftwood down the river. And I'm going to hope that somebody else's narrative does not prey upon you. And you go and now find the truth. What nonsense. How could you possibly expect a child to know who they are without telling him what they're part of? I'm going to hope they're going to discover it. That is not the way it works. Somebody else will discover your child and give them a narrative. That's what's going to happen, right? We need to understand the importance of telling our children who they are, where they're coming from, and where they're going because of that. That's not, that's not brainwashing. That's education. <laughs> education is allowing them to understand they're part of something bigger. And yes, they can make decisions of how they fall into that pattern, but allow them that. Give them that. Okay? I, I heard Rabbi Pelkowitz al-Vashalom once in one of his speeches, and he was talking when I was pretty young, at it, but it stuck with me, that there was a disease coming to the Jewish community, and he coined this phrase, affluenza. But, but what he said was, we're so busy trying to give our children what we didn't have, that we're not giving them what, what we, did, we have. did have. Exactly, precisely that. And, and in that void, into that void, we create children who are confused. We create children who don't know what story they're carrying, don't know where they're going or what they're doing with it, because instead of giving them, as you said, so to speak, what is the most, um, insightful and necessary tool for their survival, which is their story, we give them everything that they ask for, which is not necessarily what they need. So this is, this is the, the danger of what, that we're facing right now. And by the way, most of American Jewry is not succeeding. And the longer we wait every generation, the more we're losing the story again. We need to tell the story. 
We need to be able to tell where we came from, why we're carrying the story, no matter what language, no matter which country we lived in, the story needs to continue. And by the way, you know who understood this so well? Dr. Martin Luther King. He was so brilliant. Listen to this speech, 1963, in Memphis, Tennessee, in the Mason Temple. He says, and this is a speech called, I've been to the, to, to the mountaintop. One of the most brilliant orators of the 20th century. Dr. King said the following, something is happening in Memphis. Something is happening in our world. And as you know, if I was standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of, of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now, and the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to, would, would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight to ba by Egypt and I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through or rather across the Red Sea, through the wilderness or towards the Promised Land, and in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move to, on to Greece and take my mind to the Mount Olympus, and I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, Aristophanes assembled at the Parthenon, and I would watch them around the Parthenon and, and, as they discussed the great and eternal issues of reality, and I wouldn't stop there. I would go on, even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire, and I would see the developments around there through various emperors and leaders, and I, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and, and get a quick picture of all that renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of, the, of man but I wouldn't stop there I would I would even go back I'd even go by the way of that man for whom I am named and, and uh, uh, for whom I am named had his habitat and I would watch Martin Luther Luther the German as he attacked the 95 theses on the door of the church of Wittenberg but I wouldn't stop there the reformation I wouldn't uh, I would come back even to 1863 and watch the vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the emancipation proclamation but I wouldn't stop there I would come back to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come up with an eloquent, an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself but I wouldn't stop there strangely enough I would turn to the Almighty and say if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century I will be happy now that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up the nation is sick trouble is in the land by the way it's not just now um, right you see then in the 60s right folks who were concerned the confusion is all around that's a strange statement but I know somehow the only the, uh, that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars? And I see God working on this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of the people are rising up and wherever they are assembled today, whether they're in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. What a remarkable perspective. Like, think about this speech. Imagine being there. But the, what, what is he doing? What is he essentially doing? Is he's connecting the story of civil rights to the stories of old. That's what he's doing. He's saying this is part of the same story. And multiple, multiple times will he actually use the Exodus as the model of what it means to fight for civil rights. The Hebrew people fighting for emancipation as the, uh, as the black people in America fighting for the civil rights they deserve in this country, a country of freedom. And think about that. What he's doing is he's giving them a story. He's giving people a story. That's what we need to do. That's what, that's what connects people. That's what gives people a mission in life as well. He understood this only too well. And I think perhaps this is what explains one part of the Agada which we always take for granted. The Agada tells us that there's four children who ask us about the story. And one of them is called the Ben Arasha. Why is that? The Haggadah says, Rasha Ma'omer, Ma'avoda Zaslachem. What is this business to you? The end of this is in Parshish by Perikud Bays, where he asked this question. He excludes himself. He has denied all reality. He has denied everything. Think about this for a second. There's a notion in Halakha what's called a Mumar. A Mumar is a person who ejects themselves from um, Halakhic Judaism. 
And uh, that can be a very serious thing. But there's what's called mumar le mitzvah achas, mumar Torah Torah kulai. A person who rejects will call one aspect of Torah, not as serious, it's serious, but not as serious as a person rejects the whole Torah, right? So what is a per considered a person who rejects the whole Torah? So that could be a person who denies all the mitzvahs, or perhaps denies the belief in God by serving Avodah Zarah, or Shabbos. Those are the two we'll call most central of the mitzvahs, which will therefore um, forfeit that person being part of Klal Yisrael. But let's say a person, you know, is a mumar for a particular mitzvah. That doesn't necessarily affect their standing in Klal Yisrael for this particular mitzvah. Now, it's something to be corrected, but it doesn't necessarily warrant that. Now, what's this person, what's he rejecting? He's saying, Mah avodah hazas lachem. What is this business of the Korban Pesach? So you should say, okay, Korban Pesach is a very important part of uh, Judaism. But that doesn't mean to say, kofar ba'ikar. Right? That, that's not one of the 13 um, ikare imuna. It's not one of the foundations of our faith. Why should that be so serious? And so that's particularly, that's precisely the point. You, you know, we don't think about this. The Rambam says in Hilchas Shuvah, there are a number of people who forfeit their place in the world to come. The Rambam says in Source 7, Ha-Poresh Midar Ketzibor, a person who separates themselves from the ways of the community. Ava Bishaloi Ovar Averos, even though that person is not necessarily transgressing overt sins. El Nivdal Me'adas Yisrael, he's left the, we'll call the community. He doesn't, they necessarily do mitzvahs with everybody else, doesn't uh, feel their pain, doesn't fast their fasts. It just goes along like any other, any other nation, any other person. The Rabbi says that person is up because what have you done? You've stopped telling the story. You've stopped being part of the story. That's what the problem with the Russia is. It's not about the Koran Pesach. It's not about a particular mitzvah. It's the fact that he says, I don't believe that I was there. I don't believe that I needed to be there. I don't believe this whole thing affects me. It may have been the man. answers. that's a nice theory. That's a good myth. You know, it's good for the children. But in the end of the day, what does that have to do with me? That's what the Russia is saying. That person's kafar ba'ikar. What's ikar? Ikar is our identity. Our place in this whole, ro- in this whole world is dependent on the story. This is who we are. It's not just like an idea, a myth, as many archaeologists would say. That's, the, that's what's happening with the Russia. And it, go, it goes one step further. And this is something actually we learned yesterday, it, uh, but I, would, I want to reiterate it because it's such a powerful, powerful observation. The Gomorrah says, and I apologize, Paul, and my mother were actually here yesterday as we, as we learned this, but I want to just reiterate this uh, at the same time because it's so, so incredibly powerful. So um, here's, here's, the, here's the observation. The, the Gomorrah tells us in Brachos and Yudalad or Aleph that there's a halacha, that a person is not allowed to greet another person before davening, right? Now, that doesn't mean to say you're not supposed to be polite, but before you daven in the morning, you shouldn't go out of your way to somebody else, like, you know, so to speak, actively go to, to, to them and say, you know, go to their place, go to their house and say, and, and greet them. You walk, you pass them in the street, that's fine, you can say, good morning, safra demoritav, that's fine. But you shouldn't go out of your way to greet another person. So the Gomorrah has a very interesting metaphor for this, for, for this and the Gomorrah says, Person who, oh, this is actually uh, the, the, the next statement. A person does his business. But the previous line of the Gemara was, we get no sense shalom. A person who gives, who gives um, greetings or peace to another person before he davens, it's as if they built a bama. What's an abama? A bama is a, a, a little mizbeach, a little altar in their backyard um, to, 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 to God. It's not serving Avodah Zarah, but it's, 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 it's creating your own way of service. So Rav Cook says, well, like, what's, that's a strange image. Like, you know, Kilu Bana Bama, why would that be the, the case? So Rav Cook says the following. He says, there's two reasons why to, we can create a, a harmonious society, a society that, that has peace within it. The first and most basic utilitarian way of observation is, is that the reason why we cooperate with each other is because if I were out for myself, I wouldn't succeed. 
right? Because what's that going to happen? If I'm just for myself, there's going to be a bigger and stronger, you know, individual who's going to come over and take over my possessions and, uh, you know, dispossess me and take over my land. So it's, it's too risky for me to just be for myself. So you know what we'll do is we'll band together and whether it be all the farms in this little locale, all the hunter-gatherers in this particular group, or whatever it is that we choose to, to do, we'll call this a village, and we'll say we'll all work together so we can outsource security to another force, we'll call them police, and we can outsource, you know, um, perhaps, you know, uh, uh, unexpected events to another force, we'll call them the fire department, we can outsource taking out the garbage to another, uh, uh, to another department, we can pay this, and together we're stronger, right? But ultimately, why are we creating the society? To, why are we creating a safe and secure society? Because of our own needs, right? I mean, to say, I'm better with you. Not because I, no, I don't particularly like you, but, you know, we do better together, right? That's, that, that's how society is created. Um, there's another way that you can create harmonious society, and that's because you say like this, well, I believe in God. I believe in God Almighty. And God has endowed all of us with a little piece of Him. Which means to say the reason why we should get together is because, and we should work harmoniously is because, Actually, he wants us to work together like he has created other ecosystems, right? So he has created macro ecosystems, right? So we, we, look, we look at, we'll call it on a universal level, galaxies, solar systems. It's all an unbelievable harmony. And then on the micro level, if you look at the cellular biology, it, the ecosystem is remarkable. There's one place where harmony doesn't seem to reside so much, and that's in the human domain, right? And that's where the, the, the ecosystem doesn't work so well. Human beings like to put their foot in it, whether it be a relationship or the ecology or whatever else it is, and then try to re regulate backwards after they've made the mess. So Hashem, so Hashem says, I want you to work out harmony a priori. I want you to work out working together because it makes me happy when you guys work together. And therefore, the reason I can create a society or should create a society is not because I need you, but rather because God needs us. That's a different way of looking at it. So says Rav Cook the following. Those two different societies will have different endings. So take a look at source, uh, source 9. It's the right-hand column here. He says in the middle of the first line, Omnam, When we take a look at this, he says in his comments in the Gemara and We'll see there's a difference between a society governed by a lofty value, a higher calling, which can only be achieved at through this higher calling when there's harmony between the creations. Or a society created by the essentially the best for all um, individuals, the greater good. The first one is actually about really loving the larger community for, its, for itself, for its own in, um, in, integral value. Al-Kain, Kirbos Yomim, Tosip Avasa Klali Skadel, V'yiknesia Shehi L'Shem Shomam, Shesofali Iskayem. If my value in loving the rest of everybody else is because God wants it, then the bigger the community, the more I'm going to love them because ultimately God wants more harmony, even the bigger as it gets. Aval ha'achdus l'matara shel avas kol yachid atzmoi hi achdus mikrit. When I when I love everybody else, I cooperate with everybody else because I I'm, I need them. Then in certain essentially it is not inherent. It is it is circumstantial that we're working together. It's circumstantial that we all need the same police force right now. V'yosodahi avas apratatzmit, which really means to say that I'm doing this because I love myself and it's better for me to work with you. Ein sovalis kaim. That will never last. It doesn't actually have a single convergence point. It doesn't have a single, we'll call, underpinning or anchor which holds the whole society together. There's going to be somebody who's going to say, 
you know, to heck with all of this, I need this, right? And they're going to utilize this community, this, this gathering for their own purposes. And whether it be funds or security, or whatever else it is that they're going to embezzle or they're going to misappropriate is because ultimately it all stems from self-interest, not communal interest or not a higher calling. But it'll turn into um, the fire of hate and the war of brothers. And now he goes on to say, when we live on our lands, in the land of Israel, and we will build the, the, the base of Migdash, when we have one calling point, and that's the base of Migdash, that is our story. That's our central point which focuses all of our lives. That's why we can't have individual ways we serve God, even if it's on our block or our community and it's more convenient and we don't have to go to the base of all the time. It's a little easier, right? That's not the way it should be. Even though it serves us all on this particular, in this particular area, it's far to get to the base of Mikdash, right? So even though it's going to serve us, that, in a certain sense, it, it, it actually dilutes the larger message, the larger underpinning of that society. And it will undermine the unity of the nation. Because it is the calling of our service of God. It is the higher calling of our society. What does it mean, a person who gives peace to their friend before they daven? It's not just, you know, hi, how are you? Nice to see you. That's not what it means. A person who says that I'm going to create a society where I'll say shalom lachavera, meaning to say I'm going to create peace before I daven. I'm going to create a society where we can say shalom to each other without the davening yet, without God in the picture, without a higher calling, without a message, without a story. That's not going to last. It's like I'm building a bomb. It's like I'm saying I'm going to take this large value and I'm going to make my own little group over here, right? Because I'm not part of the larger value, the underpinning, the anchor of that society. Isn't that a brilliant, brilliant metaphor, right? If I start taking pieces away from the story, if I start taking pieces away from the larger ideal of society, that society ain't going to last. That's what, that's what Rav Kook is saying over here. Is in order for society to work, you need to have a higher calling because otherwise it's just based on our own needs. And when it comes down to our own needs, somebody's going to have larger needs than ours and they're going to use and utilize our collective for some other nefarious purpose as well. So let's go back for a second and to, just to appreciate this. What David Ben-Gurion was saying in 1936, he was absolutely correct. Unfortunately, perhaps I, I would wonder if his grandchildren know the, know the, the story that he was telling. That's, that's the, the danger of today, is, is that in, a, in every single Jewish child who's grown up with a, a smattering of a Jewish education knows the story of Egypt. But it's important that we continue to tell that story because our future, our understanding of Lashon Ababi Yerushalayim depends on our knowing the past as well. One of the most incredible ingredients in nationhood, which is why throughout Parashas Boy, which we are arriving at right now, is about knowing our story. Let's make sure that our children continue to know that story in order to be part of that nation. 